For many Lyme patients and their physicians, the main focus and sometimes the only focus for healing is taking antibiotics. How can we consider all the pieces of the puzzle that may be contributing to chronic illness? How are they interconnected? In this podcast, we explore mold, mindfulness, and microbes, and much more. Dr. Diane Mueller is a naturopathic physician focused on functional medicine, acupuncture, and oriental medicine, and author of the book, It's Not in Your Mind, Solutions and Strategies for Lyme Disease, Mold Illness, and Chronic Infections. She joins us from Colorado. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Mueller. Oh, thank you so much, Sarah. I'm so happy to be here. How did you become interested in working with patients with Lyme disease? You know, I feel like this is something that's so similar to so many of us across the board that are really passionate about Lyme disease is it really came from my own personal illness. And the the way that the short version of the story really is that I started having some pretty crazy symptoms when I was in naturopathic medical school where I was forgetting where I lived, you know, I'd take these very, very, very short two to five minute walks around the block because I had fibromyalgia and so much chronic fatigue at that point in time. And in just these short little walks, I could get lost in my neighborhood and forget where my home was. I was having a lot of not like numbness and pain, like to the point where sometimes I'd have to be carried the you know, the most embarrassing moment of it was like getting stuck on a toilet and being so, so much in pain that I oh. couldn't move. So yeah. it was a lot of like that kind of stuff. And it was really just kind of labeled as medical school syndrome because a lot of my, my colleagues, you know, they were suffering from fatigue that was really severe as well. And while they didn't have the level of symptoms I did, they had a lot of things going on. So I really wasn't until I actually graduated and my colleagues were getting normal and, you know, they were feeling better and I was actually getting worse that I realized this was not medical school syndrome. And that's when I started doing a lot of testing beyond kind of the standard testing for like adrenals and thyroid and some of those things that I had already done. And I found Lyme disease and co-infections and a lot of other um, more deeper rooted problems. And so that really, upon graduating, very quickly sent me down this road of investigation and research and studying with other docs that were Lyme literate. And that's kind of, that's where the rabbit hole began. Wow. I find it remarkable that you were able to get through school dealing with all those debilitating symptoms. Yeah, me too. Me too. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was like a pure, like will to survive kind of thing. Absolutely. You know, I think that's one of the things that's, it's why we call people, you know, survivors. Right. And I think survivors really is a, is a term that's used not just for when Lyme is in remission and people are feeling good, but it's actually a term that is, you know, I think accurate for when people are really fighting for their lives with this disease because it really does test, you know, it tests tests the human, I think, will to survive at like the deepest fundamental level. And that's really what it was, you know, for me. I, I, I spent a lot of time on the phone crying to my parents. So luckily I had a really good support system throughout it. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. And, you know, we will dive a little deeper into that later in the interview because it is so important to just recognize the fortitude Um of the mind and the body and the spirit to keep pushing through these things. And I like to honor all of our listeners for, for the, their strength getting through those times. 
Yeah, I was just I was just gonna comment on just I think that's you know from the standpoint of like the will to survive and the mindset. I feel like it's a it's an area that it's so easy not to give oneself credit for you know mm. what it really takes to just get through the day. And right. you know, I really think that's like if we're gonna pull a silver lining out of such a horrible thing, I feel like that's one of the biggest silver linings that I see, not only in myself, but in in the clients I work with is the silver lining of like, it really does like forge somebody into this person, you know, of, of getting to that point of, of, of the other side of this and thriving. And I think it really forges people into this, this fundamental knowing that, that one can do almost anything because to survive Lyme is one of the hardest things I think in the entire world. True that. <laughs> you recently co-hosted a summit about microbes and mental health. What can you tell us, our listeners about the relationship between microbes and mental health? It's, you know, there's so much to be said here from a, you know, physical perspective, from a mental emotional perspective. One of the things that I think is important is this, this kind of duality of you have responsibility and it's not your fault at the same time. And that's a really difficult thing sometimes to talk about. One of the one of the things that will happen, for example, with microbes and mental health is when we have these microorganisms, whether we're talking about Borrelia, whether we're talking about co-infections, whether we're talking about other microbes, such as infections in the gut or the sinuses or other areas around the body, these types of infections can very, very clearly cause neurological inflammation, including mm-hmm. brain inflammation. They can disrupt the hormonal system. They can do so much damage to the brain and the tissues there. And this is not to scare, this is to explain. And, you know, and I think it's really important to, yes, because we can develop these like mental, emotional types of imbalances, right? We can develop mood swings, we can develop, you know, Lyme rage, Babesia rage, we can develop anxiety and depression and all these other, all these other types of imbalances that are truly at the roots, rooted in these, these microbes, right? All of these microbes I mentioned and more. So this is an area where it's like, it's, it's not your fault, right? It's not your fault. You were bitten by an insect. It's not your fault. You contracted these types of things. And these types of things can lead to the mental health imbalances. They can be a huge part of the root cause. But another thing that's so important, and this is where I I tread very cautiously, but in a very important way, which is while it's not your fault, it's also, there's also this internal responsibility that we have of the nervous system gets so dysregulated because of these types of bugs, right? But the responsibility is, There's really nobody that can work to really repair our nervous system, but ourselves. And Mm -hmm. and that's where the personal responsibility comes in. And it's so, so, so hard. But, you know, one of the biggest things we talked about throughout the summit, a thread throughout it was was the fact that when we're in the sympathetic dominance, when we're in fight flight, or when we're even in freeze, one of the things that really happens is we're not sending out the signals to the tissues to repair, right? We're not sending out those neurological signals, those molecules that say repair, rebuild. So that's where it becomes also like tuning into the fact that if you have Lyme, if you have these types of infections, 
you are strong. You're like, your will to survive is insanely incredible. If you're listening to this, like I already know your will is very strong. And so that will to survive, we want to channel that in part into helping reset and repair the neurological system to send those signals to heal. And that's, you know, one of the biggest things too with this is that vicious cycle where the nerves are so inflamed and the brain so inflamed that it almost feels like there's no ability for us to put time into what is needed from that, that neurological reset. But when we do, and we realize what can happen when we start to do small things like 10 minutes of breath work when we wake up, right? It, it can be that simple, like little things to really over overcome those, those neurological signals that are pathological to the healing process. That's where the most amazing part of healing can, can really occur. Right. Yeah. You know, we've talked about uh, the limbic system being impaired before and how that relates to the sympathetic and parasympathetic system. Um, when we interviewed Annie Hopper from the DNRS program and it does seem like such an important thing to be able to put the body back into that state of calm um, and repair state. Yeah, it's huge. And it's it's one of the things that I think there's a lot of us talking about it, right? And and we're talking about it, I think, because a lot of us have seen the same thread, which is the people that I see to be the most profound to stay out of it's like recurrence, right? To get well and stay well are the people that do the effort with really retraining the mind. And, mm-hmm. you know, I can't tell you, I'm like thinking about a particular patient of mine in general um, in this conversation that has had, she's in the middle of a really, really severe Lyme flare. Um, one of the worst, you know, worst I've seen from a Lyme flare standpoint and, and it was a really, it was just extra stress in her life. And she was actually at a point with her care where we had just had a conversation about how she was like 97% there. And she had like, you know, she was almost completely feeling, you know, at that peak of her wellness where she was, she's an athlete and she was like running far distances and making good times. And like her life was back. And then she went through the stressful event and ever like her flare is so bad right now. I'm talking to her almost every day. Mm. And, and it's one of these things we've been talking is like, Oh, the missing link to this has been the neuro, the neurological reset, really getting that mind in the place where it's like we can handle, like none of us can avoid stress totally. It's part of being a human. And so it's, you know, really training the mind to say, okay, well, how can one become more resilient so that we don't go through these types of flares that, you know, these recurrent episodes that everybody, of course, is really working hard to avoid. Mm-hmm. Now, what's the biggest difference you've seen between mold and Lyme disease as far as how they present in a patient? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's something I really appreciate you asking me that because one of the things that I find a level of frustration within the profession is just this, I I feel like there's this fight sometimes that happens among professionals of like, okay, it's always Lyme that's like leading it, or it's always mold that's leading it. And I get really discouraged by these types of statements that are like always or never, because in my professional opinion, it really, really depends. I feel like I've seen people that 
if they have mold and Lyme, which is very common, it truly is Lyme that when we treat the Lyme, that's when they get the most you know miraculous change of symptoms. And then other people I've seen the opposite. So I really, you know, my personal thing that I want to start this conversation with that I really hope people are hearing is like, just be careful about things that are like always, never, never, always these types Mm -hmm. of statements, right? Right. And, you know, and so from a textbook standpoint, there's, you know, one of the biggest textbook things we could say is that mold pain has more of a tendency to be stationary versus Lyme pain has more of a tendency to be migratory. So, you know, that's one of the biggest symptom pictures, I would say. I definitely see from a standpoint of other major things, I see more, more, a little bit more POTS and dysautonomia in Lyme people than mold, but it really can go both ways. I see a little more migraines and that sort of thing in, you know, those types of headaches and migraines and, and head pain in mold people. But again, it can go either way. So I think the migratory pain is probably the most common thing that I've seen from one to another. But I think why there's so much confusion is it really, it's like we can say textbook things like that, but but really like symptom picture-wise, I've just seen just about any symptom with Lyme also be present with mold illness. And they're really both the great mimickers. They really can mimic almost any other disease out there. And what is your experience with Lyme patients when they've been treated with herbal treatments? I love herbal treatments for Lyme patients. I definitely, I have studied a lot of Dr. Klinghart's work and he was a huge, huge person that I I studied in the beginning part of uh, my, you know, my treating of Lyme and, and mold illness. And I find in my client population that from a chronic perspective, you know, we have acute perspective and I, we have chronic perspective. And I have found that a lot of people that use herbs from a chronic perspective more than antibiotics actually have less rates of recurrence. That being said, I am a huge believer that all tools need to be in the toolbox. And, you know, at some points we do wind up using antibiotics from a chronic perspective, but I have seen great results from an herbal perspective. And I think some of it is like, you know, another naturopathic philosophy on Lyme disease really is that that Lyme disease in part stems from an immunological problem, that the immune system is actually not prime. The immune, the immune cells are not actually seeing and recognizing Lyme disease, right? And so herbal medicine has such of a less impact on the gut, on the microbiome, on the huge portion of where our immune cells actually live. So mm-hmm. that's why I tend to, you know, use herbs before antibiotics in my Lyme practice as far as chronic Lyme. Acute Lyme is a very different thing mm-hmm. but as far as chronic Lyme, because I see less rates of recurrence. And I really think the fundamental component of that is so many times with chronic Lyme, we're doing triple antibiotic therapy for months and months, and that can really disrupt, you know, the immune system and I think lead to problems down the road. And, and I, and I want to say that like, you know, like I said, we want all tools in the toolbox. So there are occasional times where 
I find that herbal medicine that somebody's not responding to. And in those cases, yes, then we do use antibiotics. But at first, you know, the first approach I tend to go with is first do no harm, you know, Hippocratic oath and say, if we can, if we can reverse this with herbal medicine, which much of the time we can, then we don't have to do that, that harm to the microbiome. Right. Now, I know I've heard you speak about genetic testing before and how you've used that in your practice as well. What can that tell us about how our body might respond to either infection or treatment? And in particular, I know I've heard you speak about the HLA gene, and I've also lately been doing research on the MTHR gene as well. Yeah, it's a great question and one that comes up a lot. So, you know, the HLA-DR genes are really showing us if we are genetically predisposed to not being able to detox biotoxins, right? So when we have these particular types of genetic anomalies, our immune system is not able to appropriately and effectively tag and label essentially the the toxins from things like mold illness from mold or the toxins from borrelia from lyme disease they're not the immune system can't label these toxins as bad and when the immune system can't do that due to our genetics then these toxins have more of a tendency to accumulate in the body and it's largely the toxins that are causing a lot of these symptoms that we see with these types of diseases so the, you know, the advantage of knowing something like that really comes down to empowerment, right? Mm-hmm. Because we are, we are not subject to our genes, right? We know they have to be epigenetically expressed. They have to turn on to cause disease. So by knowing that, that can lead us to take certain, say, steps. Like we know we have a genetic tendency to these things. Then we want to take steps, for example, of making sure our house doesn't have mold in it. It becomes more important to invest financially and really being sure on that. And beyond that, it also allows us to take other things like into greater consideration. So people out of a tendency to bioaccumulate toxins have a higher tendency, ten, you know, oftentimes to bioaccumulate all toxins. So it depends upon exactly what gene they have expressed, but that's true for many people. So in these cases, we might spend more time investing, for example, in regular heavy metal testing, right? Because mm-hmm. we want to make sure we're keeping our toxic load down. So that's where it becomes more empowering. And then of Mm -hmm. course, the other thing, you know, you mentioned the MTHFR and and what that, that gene is, is that's really a mutation that's, that's basically changing our ability to turn folate into its most active form. And folate, when we, when it's in its active form, that's its usable form. It's related to detoxification. It's involved in detoxification, but there's a lot of people that get really uh, uh, like worked up around reading about the MTHFR and get really worried. And one of the things I like people to understand with this is the body has so many different checks and balances and sy- systems with detoxification. So even if you have, say, an MTHFR gene, a, a mutation, it doesn't mean like some people will be like, well, I can't detox. It's a very, very common thing I hear people say. And this by no means, it means that you can't detox. It means your body has to reroute things different ways. It means that perhaps your body could be, could benefit by supporting detox, by taking a active form of folate. 
And it's really only one piece. So if you're going to fully do like genetic testing from a standpoint of detoxification, there's a lot more that would be beneficial to look at besides just things like MTHFR, like CBS is an example of that. CBS is a genetic mutation. It's an enzyme that's involved in the process of the production of glutathione. Glutathione is one of the main nutrients we use for detox. So CBS is another example of like, okay, well, it could move faster, meaning you could detox really quickly, which is not always a good thing. It could move slower, meaning you would detox too slowly. Also typically not a good thing. We want like just the right amount, just the right of speed. And the point here is not to get too into the weeds here with too much like medical terminology, but more to help everybody understand that this really is beyond just MTHFR when we're talking about detox. Like I really want to help right. people, you know, know that just because you have this does not mean you're you're totally screwed. Like there's many other pathways your body has in order to help you get the toxins out. Right. Now, I want to go back to a bit of our earlier conversation and just talk about, you know, what is the role of mindset in healing from chronic Lyme? And I know you've spoken before about thresholds. So I thought maybe you could comment about that as well. Yeah. So my, you know, the mindset kind of like I was talking about around, like, we want to get your nervous system into the state where you're sending the healing molecules, mm-hmm. these sorts of things. And and the threshold really is, it's like, there, there's a certain portion where in order for your nerves to say signal, right? And so if I have a lot of information coming into my body that's saying, send inflammatory molecules out, send inflammatory molecules out, which the body does as signals, the, the inflama- inflama- inflammatory markers really are signals to the cells throughout the body to take action, right? right. So it's, it's that's really the purpose. But as far as creating symptoms where the threshold conversation comes in, is as far as creating symptoms, we really have to get inflammation, we have to get toxic load, basically just below a certain threshold. And that's where things start really dramatically changing. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the the example that a lot of people will give is say like a bucket of water or teacup of water and every drop that goes into the bucket or the teacup, every every drop is a toxin or or inflammation. And we really don't have symptoms because the body is trying to deal with that. And we don't have symptoms. We don't tend to have problems until we reach that threshold when the cup is full, when the bucket's full. And so a lot of getting people out of symptoms is getting people below that, that threshold, right? And so when we lower it, we want to continue to lower it beyond that because we want to keep your bucket as empty as possible so that you're not just teetering on that threshold. And so there's a relationship of the mind to this threshold, right? And so there's a lot of things that will really put bucket or drops into this bucket. And so we talked about toxins, we talked about infections, other things that will put drops into this bucket. One of them is stress. And so that's right. And so, and stress will put a lot of drops in. It's not just like one drop. It's like a lot of drops. And, you know, and a lot of times I think too, it's like, there's so much that we're not even thinking about stress. Like Dr. Weaver is a a doc that wrote a book called rushing woman syndrome. And while it's focused more on women and women, it's, it's really true for all humans around this thing that we tend to do because of our society and our culture that is like, you know, take on so many things, rush, mm-hmm. rush, 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 rush. 
And so even when we're not acutely stressed due to something going on in our life, there's still this thing that oftentimes that we have tendency in our culture to have happen, which is take on so much. So we're always already putting a lot of drops in the bucket just because of the stress of society, right? (laughs) It's interesting you talk about that because that was sort of one of my follow-up questions was really, you know, what happens because we can get stuck in this almost self-sabotaging loop, you know, because it's so overwhelming and you're like, I don't even know what to do right now. And you just have to take a baby steps in some direction to keep moving forward. And, um, and that's where I think that whole, like just heroic push of people that are able to get through this is quite remarkable. Yeah, it it really is. And and the the book I really like about this or for this is Tiny Habits for anybody that's come across that book. And it's really cool because it goes through a lot of the research on as humans, how do we actually change habits in a way that lasts? So it looks at like, okay, New Year's resolutions, right? Why do people with New Year's resolutions tend to do really well for like the first like three to six weeks and then go back to their habits? And so the same can be said with like this conversation of like stress and how do we break this habit that is really hard to break because most of us are say raised this way and we are, we just kind of get on the societal bandwagon of like life has to always be this really, you know, do as much as you can kind of thing. So how do we break, break that habit? And what I really like about the research on habit change when it comes to everything in, in this conversation mindset is that one of the biggest things that we have a tendency as humans to do is we tend to set lofty goals and So it might be, for example, like, okay, I know I need to, like, I heard this podcast, I know I need to work on my mindset. And so I'm going to, I'm going to dedicate 45 minutes a day to visualization, to meditation, to breath work. Well, that is a pretty big chunk of time, right? (laughs) And there's like lots to say about life getting in the way. For sure. Right. And so from a tiny habits model, the idea with this would be to say, Okay, think about your absolute sickest day. Think about like the worst day you can imagine. What on those days could you actually do? Is it 45 seconds of breath work? Like really honestly. And so what you want to commit to then from a habit change standpoint is commit to you win, you did your thing. It counts if you did that 45 seconds or whatever it is. And the idea of that is like, if you can figure out what you can do on your worst day and anything else is just a bonus and a benefit, then what winds up happening is you start having wins every day. And when you start having wins every day, the brain remembers that you get a dopamine right. boost in the brain, yeah. right? And that really encourages the motivation to keep on going. Hmm. Yeah, I really like how there's so much of what you say really does overlap with our conversation about limbic system impairment. And uh, I'm just fascinated by all of that and how we can really, you know, use our mind to heal, especially if we're practicing that mindfulness and catching ourselves, or, or just like you say, bringing in those tiny habits. I'm going to read that book. That sounds really fascinating. Oh, it's so good. I recommend it to everybody. (laughs) That's good. Um, And what, uh, are there any specific dietary changes that you recommend for patients? Yeah. Thanks for asking this as well. I think it's another really important conversation and a question that comes up a lot because 
my biggest feeling on this, and like, because I have people that come in that are so overwhelmed because they're doing low histamine and AIP and low oxalate and low salicylate. And it's like, you do all these things and it's so stressful to eat. And then you're eating like five foods. Right. So yeah. I don't recommend that. That was me. <laughs> that was me at my worst for sure. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, the biggest thing is like, there's definitely bio-individuality and, and everybody is unique. So I'm going to say that, and then I'll give some, some guidance from there. The biggest thing is like, I would stay away from being like, okay, if you have Lyme disease, you have to do this diet. It's like, if you have Lyme disease and you're inflamed, what really you should be doing is eating the diet that is going to make you the least likely inflamed. And for some people that might be low histamine, some people it might be AIP, you know, it, it can vary. And so what I see most frequently is a low histamine diet and is like best for this community. But I say that most frequently because obviously there's different things. And so what I would encourage people to do is to really think about, you know, to try low, you know, if you haven't figured out diet yet and you mm -hmm. haven't done low histamine that, you know, look at that as like a starting point and look at that as like, okay, if you eat this way, do you, if you eat something that is off of that low histamine type of plan, do you flare? Do you not flare? You know, what happened, you know, and just, and really become more self-aware of what makes you flare and what makes you not flare and use your body as much as possible as the guide. You know, if you can do food reactivity testing, including not just like an IgE, an allergy panel, but also like the sensitivities, like the IgGs, for example, complement is another thing that you can look at for foods. It's another way our immune reacts is through a system called the complement system. And so, you know, if you can do something like that, that can sometimes help as far as taking the guessing game out. Cause obviously we want to guess as little as possible with this stuff, but I would definitely encourage like, you know, like picking a dietary plan, like low histamine, like something that you've heard, you know, works for other people, seeing how you feel on it. And as much as possible, try not to combine too many dietary things, because the other thing that can happen is like, if you go down to five or six foods and that's all you eat, the immune system over time, if that's the only thing you're eating, will actually start reacting to those things. And you can get yourself into a really bad scenario sometimes by limiting your diet so much. And this is already so stressful and already so limiting with as far as like socialization and being involved in society that as much as we can keep some level of window open so you can be, you know, feel like a little bit normal here and there that, you know, that's just so good from the mindset component as well. Now, can you describe your four-step approach to our listeners for treating chronically ill patients? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the biggest things that we really need to focus on is not jumping straight into detoxification and that sort of thing. And the reason I say this is because often like the processes of detoxification and of killing oftentimes are really depleting to the body. So because of that, step one, I call metabolic health. And metabolic health really is about rebuilding the body and making it stronger. So this can be doing things like supporting the adrenal, supporting the thyroid, giving anti-inflammatories, giving vitamins and minerals, just kind of rebuilding the body. And then the next step from there I tend to go into is lifestyle. And so lifestyle can be like 
the mindset, helping with the lymphatic system, the the glymphatic system, which is kind of the detox Mm -hmm. system of the brain, right? So helping with those things. And I tend to not go into those things first, not because Mm -hmm. there's a problem with doing them first, but because for many people, oftentimes like doing a tiny little change in lifestyle when you're basically, you know, a lot of people are bedridden with this can be really overwhelming. So it's so oftentimes it's like start with building up with the metabolic building, then we move into lifestyle from there. If you're hearing this and you're like, oh, I'm not, you know, you're still engaged in work and you're still, you know, one of the, in the category of people that still is able to participate in life, you might do well with doing the metabolic health is rebuilding and the lifestyle changes that are supportive at the same time. But if you're really depleted, it's usually best to like start with building up and then moving into the lifestyle. And then from there, once we're, you're stronger, that's when we tend to go into detox. Most of the time detoxes before things like microbe killing, because when you have so many toxins that from, from other things are floating around your, you know, bloodstream, right? So they're floating around in your circulation. And when we kill microorganisms, like, you know, talking about like the biotoxins, you know, whether we're talking about Borrelia or any other infection, when we're killing we are actually then releasing toxins from the killing process. So the point of this, of detoxing first, is we really want to help the system to kind of clear out and empty that bucket we were talking about, getting you know as much below that threshold as possible before we kill and start filling that bucket back up again. And then also with that last stage of killing is also rebalancing. It's also repopulating the good microbes, rebalancing anything left in the body, and oftentimes we want to we want to do that all that micro balancing I find at the same time because for example like a lot of people will use NAC and acetylcysteine as a biofilm disruptor for mm-hmm. microbes such as Borrelia right and it works very well with that but NAC will also kill the the biofilms of the good guys so we want to be very careful about like okay, using this in a way where it also feels like it's time in the protocol to rebuild up the microbes, the good microbes, because we can impact when we're giving biofilm disruptors, we can impact the good guys as well as the bad guys. Great. Now, is there any emerging research or even treatment protocols that you're excited about right now? You know, I think I think in general, like the category that I feel most excited about that I'm not the only one talking about is um, the peptide world. I am getting, oh, yeah. you know, I'm getting really impressive results with KPV, that particular peptide, which is an analog to MSH, to melanocyte stimulating hormone. So we talk a lot about MSH in the world of mold, but also with Lyme as being kind of this upper regulatory hormone that affects hormones throughout the body, right? And so a lot of the symptomatology around chronic fatigue, for example, with these illnesses has been thought to be in part through the mechanism of this MSH being lowered. And KPV is kind of works similarly to MSH in the body. And I am seeing very, very impressive results with with MCAS type of symptoms and people that are just so sensitive where you have to microdose everything. So that's probably from like a, just like result perspective, because I'm, I'm seeing like so many MCAS patients, like, you know, cromulin and ketotifin, like these, these mast cell type of agents that we use even pharmaceutically, they react to them. 
you know? And so it's like having something where it's like, oh, I'm seeing that people that are reactive to everything are able to get KPV in is really exciting for that population. Wow, that's very cool to hear. Well, thank you. Do you have any other closing comments, Dr. Mueller? My closing comments are just believe in your power to heal. You know, if you're listening to this as a survivor or as a parent or a friend of a survivor, you know, I know firsthand how overwhelming and all consuming this is and how you can just wind up spending every moment of your day being completely overconsumed in the medical research on this. And it can be really, really, really scary. But I've just seen so many people recover. I just see people that every single day impress the heck out of me and just know that your body really does have a natural wisdom and intuition to heal and and just keep, you know, staying strong and, and fighting. It's really possible. Well, thank you for your fortitude and all of your own observations you made through healing. And thank you for joining us today and sharing all your expertise with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been really wonderful to chat. That's a wrap on another fabulous interview. I really like Dr. Mueller's approach to supporting metabolic health first in treatment. And I loved how she recognized that we can all pull a silver lining out of a horrible experience. See you next time. Stay safe in the outdoors. Mm -hmm.